Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I happily welcome my friend, Kenneth C. Frazier, CEO of the multinational pharmaceutical company, Merck. Ken, an attorney who joined Merck 29 years ago, is retiring as CEO this year after 10 years in the role. He has been widely recognized for his many contributions to Merck and to society at large. In 2019, he became the first recipient of the Forbes Lifetime Achievement Award for Healthcare. And earlier this year, he was named CEO of the Year by Chief Executive Magazine for his longtime leadership at the pharmaceutical giant and for his devotion to social justice and economic inclusion. He demonstrated this devotion earlier this year when he and former American Express CEO Ken Chenault co-sponsored a statement in defense of voting rights, which included signatures from over 100 Black executives and hundreds of other business leaders, including Warren Buffett and executives at Amazon and Google. Ken is also the co-founder and co-chair of 110, a coalition of leading organizations committed to upskilling, hiring, and promoting 1 million Black Americans into family-sustaining jobs. Ken and his wife, Andrea, have two children, a son, James, and a daughter, Lauren. Ken is with me here today to talk about parenting and his parenting influences, and I can't wait to dive into this conversation. So welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Ken. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. I'm pleased to be here. Very happy to have you here. So I'll just say at the outset, you have to know that you are one of the reasons I started this podcast. We sat together at a dinner years ago and had a really fascinating conversation about parenting and you and your siblings being raised by your dad. And I left that conversation thinking, we all need to hear stories like this and have more conversations about parenting. And as I think about the conversation we had, I remember you telling me about not only your father raising a CEO, but raising a concert pianist who you unfortunately just recently lost. Can you tell me about, about your sister and about how your father raised a concert pianist? My younger sister, Carol, as you say, passed away about a week ago. Mm, so uh, and she was a world-class uh, concert pianist, a virtuoso, as her obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer described her. She was, from the time she was three or four, recognized by my mother, who was a music teacher and a church organist, as being a prodigy. And she would sit her on phone books so that she could read the keys. And my mother would play from sheet music, and my sister would imitate her, could play flawlessly what her mother just done. Wow. Uh, so that was the perfect setup, being the daughter of a music teacher to go on to be a concert pianist, except for as God chose to do things. He called my mother home when my sister was a little girl. Hmm. Uh, as my father often reminded us, uh, my mother, who was some 24 years younger than him, told him at one point, confided in him almost, that she believed that my sister Carol had an extraordinary gift. And with that one comment, she gave him the lifetime responsibility for nurturing that gift. And so my dad, although he couldn't read music, couldn't read a musical note if he put it on the side of a barn, <laughs> was his obligation that he was going to bring out whatever talent the Lord gave his youngest child. And uh, I could talk about it in more details, but one of the stories that I'll never forget is we were raised in a very small row house. Mm -hmm. And at one point in my sister's development, the professor told him that my sister couldn't make progress without a better instrument. So lo and behold, I come home one day 
and they're brick masons there because they've taken off part of the front of the house in order to get a baby grand piano into this narrow row house. And, and at the same time, after that, we lost our living room because it was the living room after that. So <laughs> there was no more television downstairs because we had to live in a house with a baby grand piano. But she went off to play on the great stages of the world, orchestras, as a concert soloist, and as a member of ensembles. And she produced a lot of great people, including, if you like the most recent example, a student of hers who just recently won the voice competition on NBC. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh, that, well, I'm so sorry for your loss. Your sister sounds amazing. And I, I have to also say your father sounds amazing because, as you said, you, you lost your mom at a really early age. I mean, you guys were pretty small. You were, what, 12? How old were you? And I was 12. 12, yeah, and she was younger. And so your father, who up until that point had been sort of the traditional, stereotypical man of the house who left to go to his job every day and came home to the to his wife and children was suddenly the parent and the parent who had a prodigy <laughs> and so before that he was the driver and the disciplinarian is what he was in the <laughs> and, and made a good life for you guys in Philadelphia but but it was relatively humble in that he was a janitor as i recall yes. and and had not had the opportunity to have an any um advanced education and so He's got this prodigy daughter. He's got this son who is making the good grades <laughs> that he's supposed to be. Right. And suddenly it is it is all of his responsibility. I have a story. I'll tell about that, by the way. Sure, please do. So my father, if he were alive today, would be 121 years old. He was born in 1900. My paternal grandfather, Richard Frazier, was born in 1857 and therefore was born in slavery. My father was from that generation of hardy colored people who believed that their children could achieve anything and had tremendous belief in the future in this country. You know, my dad would say many times he knew America was different when he paid his uh, admission at was then called Shide Park in Philadelphia, walked out and saw the resplendent Jackie Robinson on the field. Wow. So in 1947, he decided that anything was possible because Jackie was on the field. Okay, <laughs> it was that simple. The other thing you need to know about my father is that if I, if I told you that he had only three years of what passed for formal education for a black child in South Carolina between 1906 and 1909, you wouldn't know who he was because he had such a thirst for knowledge. He read two newspapers a day. He spoke impeccable English. He dressed impeccably. He was a gentleman. All the things that white America told him Black people could not be, mm -hmm. determined to be. And so I tell people that I was born in the inner city of Philadelphia, but that's actually not the full truth. I was actually born in my father's house. Mm -hmm. My father's house happened to be located geographically in the inner city of Philadelphia. But it was a different place. The standards of behavior, of speech, of going to church and going to the library and being a gentleman uh, were forced upon me by a man who was determined not to be what the white man told him were the limits of his capabilities. So where do you think he, he was sent north by his father for more opportunities, sent north from South Carolina, got to Philadelphia. 
and created this life for himself and then his family. Where do you think that he he learned how to be? You said it was what he wanted to defy expectations, but he clearly had a very strong sense of self and a strong sense of style. I mean, he was a quick adapter, apparently, because he didn't come to town knowing all these things. Do you have any sense of how he educated himself socially and in life? So let me give a couple of answers. So first of all, there's a great book called The Measure of a Man. It's about Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. He was born on an island in, in the Bahamas where the language was Gullah. Mm-hmm. All right? For those who know that dialect, it's an African dialect. He moved to Nassau, where he listened to the BBC every night. And if you know anything about Sidney Poitier, he was known for his impeccable diction. And he learned that from listening to, he was a dishwasher in Nassau, and he would come back to his room because he was determined to be more than people thought he could be. Mm -hmm. My father had exactly the same thing. The only other thing I would say about my father, because I had to hear this all the time, is my father would ask of me and my oldest brother and my sister how we thought his father, who was born into slavery on a plantation, became an involuntary servant because of the, the laws around sharecropping. Mm-hmm. Never lived off that plantation. He would ask us, how did my father, Richard Fraser, get the idea to send me north so that I would become indebted to the land? Mm-hmm. Father was a man of faith, and he believed that only the Lord gave his father that idea. Huh. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so my father needed to live up to what his father started. And when I was a little boy growing up in what was then called the ghetto of North Philadelphia, and he would go to work after my mother died, and he would say, you can't go out in the street and act like these other boys. You know why? Because this is not even your life, he would tell me. This is his story, meaning this Right. And the only question is, can you write your chapter in his narrative, right? This isn't even about you. And, you know, unfortunately for James and Lauren, they had to hear the same story. <laughs> he would say to me, if my father hadn't sent me north, okay, maybe I don't own a lot, but I own this modest house that I live in. I'm not indebted to the land. I'm not a sharecropper, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you get to go to school every day and you don't have to work in the fields like I did. So how hard is it for you to get all A's? <laughs> but you ain't, you're not doing <laughs> cotton and pulling up any yams in the after school. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so so that works until it doesn't. It would not work in today's world. Yes, I agree. I appreciate what you said about his core came from his father and sort of looking back and realizing how far he'd come. So there is a, your father was a man who clearly had a lot of self-awareness, which he passed on to his children. But he also had ideas of success. Let me ask you, when you started doing well in school, you were meeting his expectations. Is that right? I mean, he yeah. did he have specific continuing expectations for you? Did he have career expectations for you? Not specific career expectations, but my father was the first lawyer I ever knew because he was a union shop steward in a segregated union at United Parcel Service because blacks couldn't belong to the Teamsters. He was the shop steward for the black union at UPS. And what that meant was that he had to grieve for people's jobs if they were suspended or fired. And so he was the first lawyer. He was a poor man's lawyer is what he really was. And so his expectations, because this was his frame of reference, was I'm scrubbing floors, but one day 
you're going to be a supervisor like the white guys in the office. He couldn't have imagined Harvard Law School and partner in a law firm or CEO of Merck, but he knew there was something better than what he had experienced. And he expected that I would get a college education and I would go off and become somebody like a supervisor at United Parcels. So, so let's talk a little bit about how this impacted all of you. Now, your sister was a, a concert pianist and um, clearly his expectation for her was that she continue in music. Did she continue in music school? I mean, what was her path to performing? Were there music schools she attended or was she able to just start performing? No, no, no. My sister was born with God-given talent, but I, as I said at her funeral last week, what people don't see is the artist in full that she became. It was all about acquiring technique. It was all about mastering increasingly difficult, intricate piano techniques. So she had, in some ways, a, a very narrow childhood because she couldn't play after she got her A's. She had to go right to that piano. And if the professor told my dad, by the time she comes back in three days for her next lesson, she must practice this piece 50 times. She could practice at 51, but she could never practice 49, ever. And that was what he made sure happened. When she went through the stages of her life as an adolescence, when she rebelled, she still had to practice. And so, you know, for us, you know, the rest of us, it was going to school. But for her, it was she needed to actually practice, practice, practice. And that's how she got to the point where uh, she went off. Went, uh, someone gave a scholarship to her because they heard her play. And they realized that as she became sort of an adolescent teenager, it was really hard to my father to keep this up in the inner city. So person gave a scholarship for her to go to a private school where it would be easier for her to get the music lessons there. And then she went off and graduated from the Oberlin Conservatory, College Conservatory, where she got her BA in piano performance. Ah. And then she took off to the stage and played around the world for many years as a concert pianist, a soloist and accompanying orchestras and the like. But then something else happened to her, uh, which is that she found the Lord. And she went back to school at SMU, Southern Methodist, and got two master's degrees, one in sacred music and one in music education. And she eventually became, like my mother, a music teacher. Her, her focus became on sacred and gospel music later on in her life. She decided that her instrument, that her talent was here to teach people about the love of Jesus Christ. And that became her life after that. Wow. I marvel still at your father, I have this image of my, in my mind of him sort of going off to work and coming back home every day and sitting down for dinner and then suddenly becoming the man that has to do everything. I mean, he had to hold you guys together having lost your mom. I mean, which is... Yeah. You know, I have to say one of the a couple of things that I remember about my mother's death. My mother was the youngest of her siblings, the youngest girl. She was my father's child bride. Mm -hmm. She went into the hospital to have a hysterectomy, which was typical in those days. And she had a pulmonary embolism. So she wasn't supposed to die. She just died because the way the surgery was done. But when they buried my mother, uh, my father called us into the living room. And we remember, we didn't really know this man very well. He called us into the living room that night. And he said, um, kids, today was a good day. And we couldn't get that through our head. Mommy just died. How could it be a good day? And he said, because she's with the Lord and she will never suffer again. And to me, that's faith. Mm -hmm. He did then was my, my, one of my mother's older sisters showed up 
with a bunch of suitcases in a car. Her, actually, she was the first person I knew who ever drew a Mercedes. She was well off. And she said, okay, I'm going to collect Carol. Because obviously, you janitor cannot raise this girl. Okay? <laughs> and my father said, no one is taking my children. And he arranged for a neighbor who actually was a hairdresser to come down and do the thing that he couldn't do. This <laughs> child's hair. Every night before she went to de- bed, Mrs. Dowers rang the bell and did the little plaits in her hair that she could wear to school the next morning. So he was a man of tremendous faith. And the other thing that he learned out of this was he didn't really know us. He certainly didn't know how to cook. I remember that I went to school right after my mother's death and I opened my lunchbox and he had made me a ham and jelly sandwich. And that's what dawned on me that my mother's death was a real tragedy and we were all going to starve to death, okay? But he taught himself, Carol, to be a parent. And long after we grew up, I remember him saying to me, you know, if your mother hadn't died, I would have never had you children the way I had you. Mm-hmm. He gave him that exposure to his children. Now, he wasn't a sentimental man. You heard that earlier. Mm-hmm. He was hard and he had really tough principles, but he learned, he learned to know his children. And he wouldn't have hit, he allowed her to play the traditional sex role of mommy, and he had to play the daddy role. Yes, <laughs> that, that is truly, truly amazing. The messages were that you, you had to do what he needed you to do. I mean, you had roles, you had to do what you were supposed to do, but his confidence in your ability to do that was astounding. I mean, was it contagious? Similar to how your father said his father had worked so hard to put him in Philadelphia. Did you feel this um, sense of, I've got this confidence because my father has worked so hard to give it to me? Yes. The other thing my father did is he gave all of us psychological armor to go out in the world in two different ways, right? So my sister and I were bused to all white school and we were not well accepted. And, And yet it didn't bother me. So I often mentor young Black people who are worried about racism in the workplace. And what I try to do for them is to deconstruct what they're worried about, because my father would always say, it's not what white people that think about you that bothers you. It's what you think white people think about you that bothers you. (laughs) So at the end of the day, if you learn to believe in yourself and you remember Jackie Robinson, you know what Jackie Robinson was really good at? He was known for stealing home which is the hardest thing to do in baseball. And it's hard because the pitcher is looking at you on third base. It requires a strong mind Mm. to feel home. So my father's whole thing was, we're not just as good as them. We can be better than them. Mm. That was the first lesson that I learned from him, which is that I didn't have to believe what racist white people thought about my capabilities. Now, here's the second lesson. I grew up in the ghetto, I said. There was incredible peer pressure. The other thing my father taught me was that I wasn't allowed to fit in with my friends in the neighborhood. In fact, the single most important piece of advice I ever got in my life was when I was a a junior high school. And at that point in time, uh, sneakers shifted from canvas high tops to leather shoes. And in my neighborhood, people didn't have nice houses or cars or anything. But if you had the good sneakers, you had status. Exactly. Okay. So I came home one day from the basketball court and I said to my dad, 
I'm not going to play basketball anymore because I'm tired of people making fun of me. I'm the only one that has these old-fashioned sneakers. And my father pretended to be empathetic. And he sent me upstairs to get his wallet. And I'm walking up the back steps and I'm thinking, what Martian has taken control of Otis Frazier? <laughs> I've never seen empathy before. So I come down and he starts counting out the money to me at the kitchen table. And he's staring at me intently and making sure he understands that I need these sneakers so that people won't make fun of me. All right. And after he clarifies that rationale, he slides the money across the table. I go to reach it. He grabs me. He administered discipline in the form of a slap to the side of my head. And he, when I got up, he said the single most important sentence that any human being has ever said to me. And I'm about to say it now. He said, Kenny, what other people think about you is none of your damn business. And the sooner you learn that, the better off you're going to be. So if you're here to tell me that you need these sneakers to be cool in this neighborhood, you cannot have them because I'm going to teach you that you need to stand on your own feet. It's so true. If you can get to the point where you are not concerned about what other people think, you are free to pursue. There, there's no stopping you. You can pursue anything. And so I hear that. It is, it is wonderful advice. But the reality is that for, for some people, so maybe some more than others, that's a hard thing to do. It's hard for me. It's hard for me. It's just that I was prepared to do it. So it's not that I don't really care what people think. Mm-hmm. But let me give you a little thing that my father taught me when I was a child. My father, if you complimented him, he would never say thank you. He would say, that's kind of you to say. And the reason he would say that is he said, I'm reminding myself that I feel good because you said it. And if I allow myself to feel good when you compliment me, I'll feel bad when you criticize me. (laughs) Okay. So his whole point was, you need to be your own person. Now, as CEO of Merck, when analysts and investors and the press, when I first took this job, said I didn't deserve the job and I was an incompetent lawyer, did it hurt? It hurt a little bit. But, you know, I could hear my father in my ear saying, boy, that's none of your damn business what they said about you. <laughs> Do you understand? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is we can give our children psychological armor, okay? So <laughs> for me, the thoughts that were put in the tape recorder in the back of my head mm-hmm. were empowering. And by the way, they were what colored people believed. Do you know what I mean to say by that? Mm-hmm. The institutions we have, the HBCUs, were built by colored people. Mm-hmm. They couldn't have imagined the amount of wealth we have today. But they believed, my father believed, as Du Bois would say in his talented tenth, that the race was going to be advanced by the excellence of individuals. Mm-hmm. That's what Jackie Robinson was, Okay. You know, one more Jackie Robinson story. Most people will say Jackie Robinson is famous for what? Being a baseball player. I mean, being the first black baseball player in the professional league. Yes. But that doesn't give him credit because in 1947, his first year, he was rookie of the year. In 1948, his second year, he was most valuable player in all of baseball. Okay? Yeah. So to say he integrated baseball is not to do him justice. And the thing about stealing home plate was Jackie demonstrated 
a superiority. Mm-hmm. And so my father's whole thing was, you're not trying to be as good as them because you would have to be twice as good as them to get to the same place. <laughs> Man, we alluded to this a little earlier. So having this very powerful, very confident, disciplinary, and not particularly sentimental man be both mother and father, be the person that's raising you, it works when it works. But clearly, if you said this wouldn't work today, could you see back then that there were aspects of it that didn't work? Or did it feel, was it, was he larger than life? He was larger than life. He was 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm a father mm-hmm. and I look back at this and I think about my own parenting, um, I think about it differently. So first of all, this unsentimental man gave me psychological armor. But one of the problems with psychological armor is it's hard to express one's feelings, Mm. right? So Mm -hmm. we were taught to be dignified. We were taught to be stoic, to be strong. It was only later in life that I realized that there's more to life than just being stoic and strong and dignified. There is this aspect of feeling. And for me, that's much harder because Mm -hmm. he didn't want my feelings to hurt me Okay, that made it harder, actually, for me to be expressive. And so there's a flip side to everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have to to raise our children and give them the opportunity and the impetus to be successful. But they also need to know that they're loved no matter what they do. In my life, I knew my father approved of me. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one funny story. Uh, I remember uh, when I got to Harvard Law School, I came back to my family church to preach on some Sunday. Maybe it was Father's Day. I don't know. But they wanted they were proud of this kid who left North Philly and went to Harvard Law School. So you come back and do the sermon. So I come back and I do this sermon. And I overheard someone talk to my father later on about was he proud of me and all this kind of stuff. And how the conversation turned around to him being such a strict disciplinarian. And this woman says to him, well, the only problem with that is your children don't feel like you're their friend. And my father said, friend? He said, friend? He said, I want to be respected and feared. He said, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because we... Many of us in this in our generation grew up with that. With if we were fortunate enough to have our fathers at, around and at home, the fathers were the disciplinarians. The ones you were you were a little scared to tell daddy. But as we had children, and as we watch younger people have children now, that's shifting. And to your point, it's 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 a very good thing for people to give importance to how people feel and and all the talk about mental wellness now. In part, involves getting in touch with your own feelings. But it's hard for we're sort of in the 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 bridge generation because we we got that. I mean, similarly, my father was the the sports guy, the guy's guy, the one who you daddy was the last resort. And I knew that wasn't always the best thing. It wasn't the best thing for some of my siblings. But you can't really turn 180 degrees away from that. I mean, because that's sort of the core of what, you know. No, that's right. And I think the goal is for balance. Right. Right. On the one hand, you know, you don't I would never want to be like my father in the same way. It wouldn't work. By the way, let's be really clear. My kids were raised in low density housing in the suburbs. (laughs) I was raised in what was called the ghetto with gangs around. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of what my father was doing was counteracting mm-hmm. what was happening in those streets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his style of parenting, I think, was totally appropriate for the time and place in which I grew up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My children grew up in a different world. And how do we then inspire in them that same desire that I had to prove that I was up to my father's standards? Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't be like my father. My father, in some ways, was overly simplistic, right? Everything to him was, it's either vice or virtue, okay? And there was no in-between. It was either strength or weakness. And uh, now that I'm older, I understand that the world's a lot more nuanced Mm -hmm. than my father was. But boy, was he the right father to have in the mid-1960s, if you grew up in West Philly. Yeah, no, I I know that's right. And the ability to envision your family in a circumstance that's better than the one that they're in and and more importantly convey that to them so even if you never leave that place you know of the expectation i mean that is still as valid today as it as it was when we were growing up now and so the, the challenge is to be able to do that and not sort of beat out and i don't mean necessarily physically but sort of squash <laughs> the feelings part. Some children particularly need to feel that they are loved and not to just intuit it by the circumstances. What I want to ask you, you know, you in your career, in your life, and you've talked about this, in many instances, you have been focused on doing the right thing. You know, when you have, as you have in many circumstances, stepped out on a limb, stepped away from the expectations of you. Even when you were practicing law, you stopped the the fancy corporate law practice to represent a man on death row and you got him off of death row. And then and when you were in as CEO, you quit the President Trump's counsel when you disagreed uh, vehemently with his perspective. And, and, and just recently, you and Ken and other executives went up against Georgia and then ultimately the people who want to suppress voters. My, my question is that, that I'm, I'm trying to get in terms of your father's influence What's the core of knowing what's right? Is, is it faith-based? I mean, you said it's not always easy, but where does the, the core of that come from? Where did it come from from your father? And is it the same place that it comes from for you? Well, part of it is faith-based, but I think the part that you're talking about uh, is not as much faith-based as it is. Um, my father mm-hmm. was what used to be called a race man. We don't use that expression now, but with that, it's not a racist. It's not a person who's anti-white. Mm-hmm. It's a person who very much supported the advancement of his people. And so if you grow up in a house where the dinner table conversation is about civil rights and this dinner time conversation is about why, when you grew up in the South, lynching was so terrible. It was terrible because it wasn't just that someone in your community was lynched. It was that people were made to get out of their beds and watch somebody be lynched. Mm -hmm. Okay. And have somebody who brings that to their parenting. And, And then also on top of it, again, because it's not just the issue around how the race issue affects you in terms of how white America views you. It's also how you're viewed by your colleagues in the neighborhood. And so... You know, if somebody woke me up at four o'clock at Christmas morning and say, what are you most proud of? I would say that I was able to go to school, get good grades, speak perfect English, and I could fight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because in my father's house, you didn't run from anybody. Okay. 
So if you go up in my neighborhood and you go to the white schools mm. and you learn to speak well and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and you're my father's son, you're forced to be a pariah. <laughs> okay. And if you can be a pariah <laughs> when you're 13. You can definitely be a pariah when you're rich and you're a CEO. When you think about it, you know, <laughs> I'm a bit blunt. If people didn't like you in my own neighborhood, you might get your ass whipped over it. <laughs> There's none of that here. I mean, what was Trump going to do but tweet at me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The people say, oh, that was so brave. You know what was brave? Crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge was brave. You know, and, and to your point, how do we instill that in the next generation? Because... We don't want to put our children in harm's way so they can make their way out of it. I mean, you know, we don't want to send them into a place to fight so that they can learn to fight. But that ability to not walk away from a, an uncomfortable circumstance is is a learned behavior. I mean, you, you can, I mean, or, or an experienced behavior. I mean, you have to be in a circumstance to know that you can rise to it. And I, I, I wonder, so many of our children are not ever put in that circumstance. Right. Maybe not physically, but but the same issue occurs with respect to, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting. If you go around the world, there there are tribes where people die because they're shunned by their tribe. They actually physically die. They're not deprived of anything necessary for life other than the respect and the acceptance of their, mm. their tribe. That actually makes a, the point that I was talking about earlier, which is often... We don't have physical fear. We have the fear of being ostracized. We have the fear of not being liked. We have the fear of people saying things about us behind our backs. And that generates the same kind of fight or flight instinct in us that growing up in my neighborhood when somebody wanted your lunch money, you had that same fight or flight. Nobody's taking your lunch money anymore, but they might take your title away from you. Mm-hmm. You see the out, right? Right? They could fire me as CEO of Merck. And, and if you allow that to, to actually make you afraid, mm-hmm. then you hold on to your position in life at the expense of your values. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's probably not very articulate. Oh, no, no. That was perfect. It's a little bit like the guy that wanted to take your lunch money on your way to school. <laughs> no, that, that, is, that is perfect because you're right. Even if they're not facing down bullies, it, ha- it, it happens less these days. Bullying is cyberbullying. But is there cyber is cyberbullying. Yes, yes, yes. There is cyberbullying. But but. We can we can help them be mentally strong. I mean, you can you, there's a mental battle that you fight against the perception that you're not like that you're not good enough. And what we can give our children is the the core of confidence. And and you know part of that core of confidence comes from what your father did for you, and that is talk about the history. I mean, you can proudly talk about your grandfather. Yes. And and we need to make sure our children can proudly talk about their ancestors because. You, I, there have been many times when I've thought, okay, I'm having it bad, but I didn't have it nearly as bad <laughs> as <laughs> two generations ago. <laughs> Context is everything. Oh. And, and that's why what hurts our kids is the messages that are being sent to them in a post-racial, so to speak, I'm making air quotes, mm-hmm. in a post-racial society. And they're constantly hearing that little nagging voice where people say, you're not quite... Okay, Mm -hmm. just not quite smart enough. You're just not quite 
pretty enough. You're just not quite good enough. And if you don't give your children that psychological armor, then they hear that. And I, you know, I have to say, I've mentored so many young African-Americans and I can hear them. They're saying that they're wounded by the subtle messages that are given to them through society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we have to, we just have to equip them to deal with it. Absolutely. And, and they're, they're wounded by that. They're also, they're, they're wounded by the knowledge that there have been programs that have advantaged them as there should be. Mm-hmm. And the combination of knowing that there are these programs and then believing because other people want them to believe that they don't deserve to be there helps them feel like they're imposters. They don't belong. We don't, we need to embrace as many of these programs as possible and then just teach our children that they are fully equipped <laughs> to be as successful as anyone else in, in whatever they're going. I mean, and I, I, I've seen that in so many instances, if kids can get past their own concern about sort of whether they fit in or, I mean. And that's what I said at the very beginning of this interview. I said what my father used to say to me, it's not what white people are thinking about. You. Mm-hmm. you think they're thinking about you. That's bothering you. So you need to understand the distinction between those two things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. If you can stop thinking about what you think they think and only deal with whatever is coming at you, you can get the armor for that much more easily. The reality is they're worried about themselves. <laughs> you know what? That is the ultimate truth. Most people are just so self-absorbed and assume they're really not. <laughs> they're not right. thinking about you. No, you're here. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you start looking at it that way, <laughs> if you start realizing that what's going to hold you back is this voice in the back of your head, uh, I think you can go a lot farther. I mean, people are afraid to fail. I see it all around. In this company, one of the reasons I became CEO of this company is because I was willing to fail multiple times. And other people were so insecure that they wanted to succeed, but they wanted a very narrow conception of success. You know, I'm probably the biggest failure, at least in the public sense, in recent history of this company. In in what way, sir? (laughs) Okay. Well, so, you know, it's interesting because I used to be the general counsel of the company. And we had to define, defend 60,000 lawsuits brought over a withdrawn painkiller named Vioxx. And it was like a huge scandal because we were accused of selling a drug that we supposedly knew caused heart attacks, which, of course, is ludicrous. But there's 60,000 cases and a lot of voracious plaintiffs lawyers suing us all over the country. Well, anyway, we tried. I decided that we were not going to settle and we we're going to fight each case one by one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we get our first verdict out of 60,000 cases, and it's terrible. And the verdict is $253 million. Ooh. And New York Times, very helpfully, on a Sunday front page, said two things. They said, Merck, according to Wall Street, is likely to go bankrupt. That's not a good thing. And then they said, and then they can blame it on the ineptitude of their lawyer who insists on fighting each case. Oh, my God. <laughs> Right. So I told people who tell me about what they're fearing. I said most people will never be referred to on the front page of the New York Times. Much less be called inept on the front page of the New York Times. But you know what they were really saying? I lost. I lost 
trying to do something that no general counsel had ever done, which is to try 60,000 lawsuits. And so what I say to people is, you know, a lot of people think that life is a test. And we grew up as good students, you and me, Carol. Mm -hmm. You were supposed to get good grades on the test because that was a reflection of your character. Did you study hard enough? Exactly. In fact, life is a contest. It isn't a test. All right. So if you get to the Super Bowl, by definition, one team must lose. There is no shame in it. If you get to the starting line at the Olympics for the 100 meter dash and you're in last place, you're still the fastest person anyone around you ever knew. (laughs) All right. So if you start seeing the world through that frame and not think that if you fail, it's a failing grade, it's about you, then you can try to do things that are hard. You can reach for things that you might fail at, but you know what? You might succeed. No truer words, man. That, that that is so true. Look, this is supposed to be about parenting, but I'm writing, I'm taking notes myself. <laughs> well, because we're all kids. You realize that. We're still kids. We just look grown up. Yeah, absolutely. That That is why I do a parenting uh, podcast, because we're all still processing how we were when we were little. <laughs> and here we have responsibility for raising little ones up. <laughs> so we got to, we have to, Deal with it all at the same time. You know, there's a funny vaudeville joke, can I tell you, that I think it explains a lot. I love jokes. <laughs> so the joke says that father knocks on the door early in the morning in, son's, in his son's room, and he says, son, time to get up and go to school. And the son says, I don't want to go to school. And the father says, why? And the son says, three reasons. I'm tired, school's boring, and the other kids are mean. And the father says, well, let me give you three reasons to go to school. It's time, it's the right thing, and you are the headmaster. (laughs) So much about life is we're the headmaster, but we don't know it. (laughs) That took me a second, but that's hilarious. (laughs) That is hilarious. I'm going to use that. That is. (laughs) But I think it's, it's funny, but I think it's illustrative of what we're all going through in life which is that deep down inside, we're the scared little child. And if we know that, once we know we're scared, then it loses its power over you. It's only when you're not aware that you're scared, mm-hmm. all right, that you actually, it takes control of you. Once you recognize that you have to do something, even when you're scared, let me give you the greatest example. Look at young men who are sent into battle. There is no stronger instinct than self-preservation. And yet, when they go into battle in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, it would be harder for them to run than to stand and fight. Mm-hmm. Okay? And yet, we actually give ourselves reasons from running from our responsibilities and no one's shooting at us. <laughs> <laughs> because we've allowed the fear to be the thing that determines our course of action. And it doesn't have to be, is my point. That's absolutely true. The fact that you've been able to get to that point is, is is yet another tribute to your father because you that doesn't sound like something that he would necessarily have thought about in terms of the fear and conquering the fear. I, I, it sounds like he might not have wanted to even talk about the fear, that there was fear. <laughs> and, and the next generation, you've managed to see, I said we were the bridge, but you're definitely, you are the bridge. You, you're moving into the next generation because 
that kind of insight is going to be helpful to parents everywhere as they as they try to give their kids that important psychological armor. Well, but I've learned from my kids too, Carol. The difference between my father and me is I care what my children think of me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I want to be respected and feared, but not necessarily in that order. I would never say that. <laughs> I want to be loved by my children. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be loved at all costs by my children, but I listen to them. And so they give me candid feedback about what kind of person they think I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it's not fun. And so I think I've learned as much from my children as I have from my father. So I told you we all should be seeking balance. My children are the ones who are helping me try to find this balance before I depart this world. That that is is great. And and so that means that we have to tweak your father's saying just a little sort of what other people think of you who are not your family and your children is <laughs> none of your business. Right. But you ought to care about what they think. And you ought to care very much about what they think. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, this is as wonderful as I knew it would be, but I'm going to wrap it up here. And I'm, I'm just going to ask you to do me the favor of one quick little GCP bonus round, two quick questions. One, and I'm sure you have great answers to this. First, what is your favorite poem or saying or psalm? Some words that um, mean a lot to you. Well, there's many of them that mean a lot to me, but the one that just popped into my head is a scripture that my grandmother made me learn. It's Ecclesiastics 12, which says, remember the Lord thy creator in the days of thy youth, because it's really a poem about aging. And it's really a reminder as that all of what we have in life passes. Mm -hmm. And now the final question, children's books. Were there any that you love growing up or that you love reading to your kids? Well, of course, Harry Potter comes to mind. <laughs> but but no, I mean, I don't remember any from my childhood in particular, but I do remember books like Goodnight Moon. Mm-hmm. And I like remembering when my children were little and they were fascinated by that book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things that I try to do is I always try to put my my youngest and my oldest and my youngest to bed. And that was really precious time at bedtime. Mm-hmm. Thank you so, so much. I so appreciate it. All right, Carol, all the best to you, Bill, and your family too. Wow. What a great, great conversation. It was so wonderful to hear Ken's thoughts on his family and on his father and his father's influence. I hope that parents everywhere took notes <laughs> because that certainly was a lesson. And I hope everyone listening really enjoyed it and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.